This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the Tracking Board's Launchpad Writing Competitions. In just four years, the Launchpad has helped 216 writers get signed, 68 projects get set up, 35 writers get staffed, and led to four bidding wars. Paper Team listeners can save $15 off their next purchase by using the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word. To check out the current and upcoming competitions, visit tblaunchpad.com and see how the Launchpad can jumpstart your professional writing career. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about dialogue for television. What is the point of dialogue? What defines good or bad dialogue? And some common pitfalls to avoid. All right, and welcome again to our hot take segment or <laughs> odds and ends or whatever it is that we're Still calling this. Have we decided on a We should name? probably figure out a name. I think on the in the show notes, it's described as odds and ends. So I guess so far, we're going to be referring to it as odds and ends. All right, well, here's an odd for you guys. We recently received uh, somewhat of a mixed review on iTunes, and we wanted to address the, the concerns that the person uh, had left with us. So this review was actually written by a person called Meta Motivation. I think he or she was uh, very interested in Maslow's Pyramid of Needs, uh, and he or she wrote, Disappointing! There are several episodes which contain interesting or useful information, and the hosts can be enjoyable to listen to. They also can come across as very young and green in the industry. They reference articles they read or other podcasts far more often than their own experience. This would be fine, except I sometimes hear them get things wrong. When the host of an informational podcast gets some fact wrong, it makes me doubt the rest of the information. Now, Nick, did you know that despite the fact that this is a podcast about breaking into TV, we are considered young and green in the industry? I mean, yeah. So I guess we just wanted to say that that's literally the point of our podcast is that we are also trying to break in. And that's the point of view and the perspective that we wanted to make this podcast from to share our experiences with other people. So therefore, we can't draw from a long list of experiences to give to people. All we can tell you is what we've been through. So the reason that we reference other podcasts and other people who are more experienced is because that we're learning things from there and we want to share that with people and then we'll communicate as much of our experiences as we can. And also those references usually are references for a reason. These are not necessarily things that people question as resource, I think at least. Shorners and other professional writers who discuss their own writing process and how their rooms work, like Gene Espenson on, on Buffy. I think it would not. be a lot worse if we didn't reference anyone else and we were just trying to tell you what we knew as individuals and what we had experienced, because as we have openly said, we're still fairly new to this too. And so we're just trying to give you as much as we know, but also point you in the right direction of things that really helped us. And yeah, so, I think it would be very pretentious to pretend that we're this all-knowing entity that will give you all these answers. Exactly. And that's certainly not what we're looking to do. To address the other point in terms of getting things wrong, I'm sure that we have gotten a couple of things wrong, given the amount of stuff that we've been talking about and going over. And if anyone does spot those things, we'd like to know specifically what it was we got wrong so we can go back and correct ourselves or even just know for our own information. So that would be more helpful if, if someone was able to tell us what it was and we could go back and look at that. Right. I mean, I think there's a distinction between being wrong about a fundamental business element and then mislabeling a show as being that story. And from what I understand, we did get a couple of things wrong in terms of referencing, I think, Snow White and the Huntsman in an episode sure, yeah. and referenced a specific fairy tale. But it's disingenuous to discount the rest of the episode or the show itself just because of a misnomer of a reference instead of just a fundamental error in the conceit. Yeah, I 
I mean, look, no one's perfect. I admit that we are going to make mistakes along the way. And anytime anyone wants to let us know what that is, we are more than happy to stop and uh, and correct that. I mean, if Meta Motivation wants to send us an email, ask at payroutine.co with the list of errors and mistakes or things we got wrong, we'd be more than happy to discuss them on the podcast as well. Absolutely. So please cool. do. Uh, whoever's listening to this, if you think uh, we have done so much wrong that we deserve <laughs> a stern email, then uh, please go ahead and send it. Because, you know, I feel like we are an open podcast or not open enough to discuss those things on air. Absolutely. Um, and we do appreciate any feedback, whether it's positive or negative or criticism or praise. Uh, we're always open to that. So moving on. Moving on. I know we got uh, another email or question, Nick. Uh, yes, it was actually a tweet. Uh, I got a tweet from Jordan Giddens, and uh, she said, I just started listening to Paper Team Podcast by TV Calling and NJ Watson. It is chock full of great information for television writers. Uh, and then followed up with, I'm happy to have found you guys. I'd love to learn more about pitching. So, uh, I said that we would th- put that on the list and maybe we'll do another episode going in a little more detail and pitching. But in the meantime, I thought we would do a little mini hot take segment element of what are some pitches that have been done to death? What are some cliches, some tropes, things that have just been over pitched everywhere? Literally done to death in some cases, right, Nick? That's right. So, uh, speaking of that one, these are from my personal experience of working as sort of a development executive at a company, uh, and pitches that I've heard so many heaven or hell or purgatory workplace comedies everyone's like it's heaven incorporated or it's like you're you're working in a dmv in purgatory or it's like this is hell as a you know uh, a shopping mall so like i think i, I think they're big fans of jean-paul sartre where it's like <laughs> hell is other people well, I mean, we have what the good place now. We have so many of those actual, mm-hmm. uh, actual factual successful comedies on air that deal with it that, you know, maybe you should get another idea. <laughs> yeah. And look, I, I've written my own comedy that involves a lot of like hell elements and Christian mythology and whatever. So I'm no stranger to this, but really it is such an overdone concept and there's very little you can bring to it that's new at this point. So I'd avoid that for now. Continuing on that role, uh, the second coming of Jesus as a comedy. I've seen that all the time. <laughs> too it's like hey jesus is back and he's a dropout stoner in in brooklyn or something or you know jesus is back and he's uh a, a bad boss at an office building you Pl- know like please tell me that one of the scripts had jesus with the s replaced by the number two like it's jesus too <laughs> probably maturing. jesus is back as a millennial you know like <laughs> all of it is just again such an overdone concept and it's very hard to do something clever and nuanced with that outside of the initial joke of the premise. Another one, which I'm sure a million people have heard, is a bunch of 20-something friends just trying to make it in life, or trying to make it in the big city, or trying to make it in the entertainment industry. Anything that's just an amorphous blob of friends who are all kind of, like, it's basically writers usually writing about their own friend group and putting it into a script, and they're being like, hey, this is us, and here's all the funny things that happened to us one time, and we all lived in the same house, and unless, again, unless you have some kind of hook into that, or some kind of genuine work on those characters, it's so hard to do anything with that, especially if you actually want to get it made. Usually the only way these things get made is if a very established showrunner is on board with it, or because the script is just such a high quality, or you have big-name talent attached, something like Happy Endings. Yeah, I mean, there's so many of those wannabe entourages out there that it doesn't make sense. Entourage worked because of Mark Wahlberg's name, and then they got all those people attached to the project. But in a vacuum, if you're a nobody, nobody cares about your life story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just because everyone's had that experience, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to want to read that script. (laughs) So... 
another one that we get a lot is uh, it's a fake ex who has to become a real ex. So it might be a former TV cop now has to become a real cop. Or like, you know, even in Psych, it's like a fake psychic has to pretend to be a real psychic. Like it's such a, uh, the grinder. A fake TV lawyer has to pretend to be a real lawyer. It's been done a million times. That's half of Fox's slate, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So like as amusing as that concept is, again, it's been overdone and just avoid that for a while. Everything is cyclical. I'm sure in another few years, there'll be another uh, wave of things in the way that time travel stories have been ever done recently. Um, but for now, avoid them. Uh, and the last one that I wanted to comment on is the classic middle-aged white guy just trying to get his life back on track, whether he's recovering from alcoholism or he's just had a divorce or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Again, done so much, you're not going to do really a better job than like Californication or something, which has already ran for like nine seasons. So, uh, <laughs> it's just, it's basically the older writer version of the young 20 something friends is the, the middle-aged guy just trying to make it work, you know? Wow, that sounds so riveting, Nick. <laughs> we'll be doing down the line another pitch episode, but in the meantime... That wraps up our little odds and ends segment, and let's get on with the show. So let's start talking about dialogue. Nick, can you tell us what is the point of dialogue? So the purpose of dialogue and what you can use it for is to convey character and relationships and also power dynamics. You can use it to convey exposition. You can use it to move the story forward. Uh, you can use dialogue to create conflict and obstacles. And you can also use it to provide humor and comic relief. You know, you can really do almost anything with dialogue in terms of telling a story. I mean, look at plays. You put two people in a room and you can tell a satisfying story almost entirely through dialogue. Uh, should you do that in TV? Well, not usually. You know, visuals and action are just as important. It's more of a visual medium. But many shows, especially comedies and multicam comedies, or say an Aaron Sorkin drama, rely heavily on long reams of dialogue between characters. You'll look at the script and see entire pages with barely an action line on them. Right. I mean, I think the reason why those shows specifically rely so much on dialogue is because uh, those multicam setups were traditionally more uh, theatrical in the, in the conceit. Obviously, television historically has been um, sort of uh, between radio and theater, at least originally it was. There was so many shows that were filmed uh, theater pieces or radio plays just put on screen. Mm -hmm. And then you have those multicams uh, as recent as maybe Friends. Friends is a great example of something that is uh, heavily relying on comedy, but it also uses all the theatrical tropes. David Trimmer is a great example of an actor who knew that this was basically a theater being filmed or a play being filmed in front of a live audience. That's why he would be so, you know, physical with his comedy. But at the end of the day, dialogue is really about communication and communication or language is about sharing something specific with someone else. How you phrase that thought illuminates who you are as a person. If you look at what people say in a conversation, it's often a about someone arguing their point. How exactly they go about it is the crux of who they are. Now, some people will want to express detailed stories about their life experiences to draw you in, and others may just give logical arguments like Spock. But whatever that framing is, that is how that person speaks and why dialogue is important. All right, so now that we know what dialogue is and what it's used for, what makes good dialogue? Well, I mean, good dialogue, I feel like, sounds natural, even though when you're looking at it, uh, specifically, it really isn't natural, but it should definitely make you think it is. Yeah, it's more efficient than, than real life talk, which we'll get into later. Um, I think that good dialogue also feels true to the characters. It's as though they are the only person who could or would say that. And there's the classic covering up the names on the script trick and seeing if you can know who is who without seeing who, what the name is. I think that ties also to it being entertaining. If, you know, a script is in a college essay or a class with people just 
monologuing to death about a, an argument or um, some fact. You want it to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. I think good dialogue is also motivated. You know, we understand why someone would say that in this situation, or we've seen the plot and the character events leading up to this and understand then how those things would make this person say that dialogue. And also, I think it's original. I think that things that are said and presented in a fun new way that we haven't heard a million times before is often good dialogue. Right. I mean, you may also wonder about the need of dialogue in a general way. I know uh, the episodes uh, Hush on Buffy that we actually talked about a while ago and the BoJack Horseman Under the Sea episode were both celebrated and kind of became iconic because of their lack of dialogue. But you have to keep in mind that those are anomalies. They're exceptions to the rule, not the norm of what the show usually is. They were because they're in stark contrast to what people see in the rest of the show, like some quippy Whedon lines. Exactly. You can't make an entire series like that, and you definitely can't make that your pilot because you have to set the expectation for the series. I will say this. If you're successfully making a stunt pilot that is completely silent and it works, that will blow people's mind. But I feel like in 99.999% of the case, it's not going to work. So let's talk about the specificities of dialogue. And first up, let's talk about the distinction between natural dialogue and stylized dialogue. Yeah. So as we were saying before, dialogue shouldn't really read like everyday speech. People in real life are inarticulate. They ramble, they repeat themselves, they interrupt and talk over each other constantly. And this will say a lot of pointless things and filler words like, um, you know, in television, you need to be efficient and effective, keeping in mind the pacing, the context, the character, the story, all that kind of thing. At the same time, you probably shouldn't swing too far the other way into what I call sorkinitis, where even the intern who brings them coffee is firing off zingers like Oscar Wilde. <laughs> It's terminal, Nick. Uh, I would also say the distinction comes from the kind of story you're doing. Something like Mumblecore or by the Duplass brothers will have a very different approach to dialogue than Sorkin or even Shonda Rhimes. But whatever style you're going with, uh, in my mind, I think it's important to be consistent within your approach to that story. A character speaking like Cersei wouldn't work in a world like Grey's Anatomy for many reasons, including the cadence of her speech or even what is being stated in the first place. Now, on top of the, the style, there's also... Uh, elements attached to the characters. Obviously, what defines a character is what they do, but on top of that, it's also what they say and how they say it. Yeah, I'm curious to get your thoughts. What do you think about writing accents and other idiosyncrasies into the dialogue and the wording of it? I mean, personally, unless an accent is intrinsic to the comprehension of a character, or rather the lack of comprehension to that character, then I usually won't write it within the dialogue lines. And the reason is simple. You still want the script to be legible. You probably don't want your reader to try to kind of decipher every line a regular character is saying, unless that is the intent within the story. Now, if someone is eating food and trying to talk at the same time, I mean, you can, and I I usually do it, you can write that in the dialogue. Like, instead of saying, nice to meet you, it's like, oh, nice to meet you, or whatever. Uh, And the same goes for someone mispronouncing a name or a word. In that case, you may want to write it phonetically. But those are specific, temporary examples. The only time I would consider writing out accents in a script on a line-to-line basis is if everyone within the story is equally struggling to understand that character specifically because of that accent. But as a reader, I do believe it gets really annoying if you have to decipher every sentence that character speaks. Sure. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and I think the same with writing stuff in foreign languages, just write it in English and then use the parenthetical, you know, like brackets in Urdu or whatever it happens to be. 
uh, instead of making us go to Google Translate. Now, what are your thoughts on ellipses, hyphens, italics, kind of the stylistic choices of dialogue? I think with those, they all have their place, but as always, less is more. It's totally fine to use any or all of those, but once you start to overdo it, each of them lose their meaning and their effectiveness. So I would try not to have more than like two on a page of those different kind of little tools. You know, be careful of ellipses and hyphens dictating how the actor should deliver a line. And technically, I think they're meant to be used to indicate someone trailing off or being interrupted in their dialogue. Um, but very often they're used to add a little mini beat to a line, either before or at the end of it, uh, or have something seem more sudden, which again is valid, um, but should be used sparingly, um, or maybe only when it would negatively impact the reader's understanding or enjoyment if it wasn't used. All right, so let's talk about the process that we each use to kind of find that dialogue. How do we decide what's going to come out of this character's mouth? Well, I read the secret, Nick. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, for me, the first step is usually about listening, reading, and kind of ingesting everything. Uh, the stories that tend to write are so specific within their particular worlds that I try to consume content directly related to that perspective and get to know how people in that world think or talk. So for example, when I wrote a pilot set during World War II, I obviously did my research reading about what happened. But on top of that, I was also watching movies both set in that era as well as movies written in that era. Now, I did both because there is a distinction in the style of writing dialogue over the past 60 years, obviously. Now, the same idea applies with contemporary settings. Although I may watch some historical footage here or documentaries there uh, about a specific business or setting to hear how people talk about their own world. Uh, and, and after that, I can find my own take on those ideas uh, down the line. But I find that knowing sort of the shorthands or the vernacular of those industries is critical in approaching how people living and working there speak. What was the biggest surprise to you doing that research that people didn't say or do back then that you couldn't put in a particular word or a way that people spoke? I think it's the slang. The slang is the biggest thing. And whether it is uh, a procedural or a pure piece, um, it's it's those weird um, sentences or phrases or words that you're not going to be using in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, to go back to that example of um, the legal procedural that was set in a very specific area of the law, the judges, for example, were not called judges. They were called surrogates. Yeah. And if I sort of knew, only knew sort of the cursory level uh, of that law, you know, just based on watching a bunch of legal dramas that would be using judges instead of surrogates but that's a very different approach now in terms of writing dialogue for each scene i will often start out by writing the basic version of the exchange in a notepad uh, whether it's a physical notepad or a digital notepad and they're there to literally help me figure out the pacing of the story and kind of the dance of that exchange maybe two characters are talking very fast and bouncing off each other at an insane speed or maybe it's someone monologuing about something for a page. Well, whatever the case may be, I first worry about what people want to say and then try to slowly work my way to how they say it. the sub, you know, it's the, this idea of subtext versus text. Yeah, a lot of the time for me, once I sit down to write, it's just the first thing that comes into my head. As I'm writing a scene, the cogs are working, and sometimes it's like a runaway train, and I'm just trying to catch it and get it all down. So uh, I'm really sitting there searching for like, hmm, what should Jessica say? You know, especially in comedy, you just have these comedic reflexes and instincts that go boom, and you kind of need to be quick about that. But that being said, what comes in your head first is not always the best choice. Often when I'm rereading a scene, I'm like, oh, actually, they wouldn't say that. That character doesn't sound like that, or we don't even need this line here. And where you can get caught is sitting there stuck on one line going, 
wondering, but what would they say? Or what's a funnier joke here? And you can spend 10 or 15 minutes trying to figure it out or going back and forth with the writing partner. And at that point, I find it's just useful to put a placeholder in there and star it and come back to it later. You know, don't waste time trying to make it perfect when you could just be getting more work done later in the script and come back to it with fresh eyes. Do you think it's easier to write uh, sort of a joke or um, a good line of dialogue? I don't know. For me, there's not as much of a distinction. I think that a joke is always a good line of dialogue. Like a joke should never be so removed from the story that it's just like, and here's a a useless pun for a line that should always be enveloped in what the characters and people are doing. You know, with comedy, we have this great barometer of whether something is working or not. And that doesn't make you laugh. You know, laughing is an involuntary reflex. And when you hear something and it's people in the writer's room or you and your writing partner and you laugh out loud, you know, something is there, you know, drama, it might be a little bit harder because I imagine when you write a good line, you're not always crying at it. Are you Alex? (laughs) I mean, always. Yeah. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm shedding tears reading my own scripts. That's what usually happens. Yeah. But aside from that kind of just like riffing style, often when I do sit down to, to a scene, it's like, what needs to happen here? And what are the main, like, so for example, like three points that need to happen in the scene, it's like someone needs to get to this point and this needs to happen. And then we need to get to here. And then, so that will just be like a good overarching structure in my head as we're kind of playing around. Do you often just write out jokes in those kinds of first draft stages? Only if it kind of comes to us. I'm not trying to push a bunch of jokes in there. I'm more than happy to write it as a fairly straight scene and then revisit it later and make it funny. Um, it really just depends on on what kind of comes to us as we go. Now, what are your thoughts on finding dialogue in other places? I often find it helps to picture a particular actor or a comic in the role and then just go with what you think they would say or do or how you think they would react here because you know their kind of personality so well from TV or from movies. And you can also do that with using inspiration from people you know in real life, your friends, your family, just as long as you have a rock solid concept of who this person is and then how they interact with people and the world around them rather than just using this kind of character as an empty vessel for a writer's lines and story that are coming out. Yeah, I definitely agree that as a writer, it's very important to learn about um, different cultures and different people. And as an immigrant, I had to adapt to another language and culture. So I sort of had to figure out why certain people talked a certain way. And I'm actually right now learning Mandarin, not because of some immediate practical reason, but just because I was kind of interested in the syntax and how that language works on a structural level. It's just another way of approaching language and dialogue that I found interesting to look at. It definitely opens up different parts of your brain and gets you thinking about things. Exactly. And honestly, it doesn't even have to be as cerebral as studying new languages. I actually love watching the live feeds of Big Brother because you hear people from across America talk about everything in a very kind of naturalistic way. All right, so we've talked about the basics of good dialogue and our own approaches with dialogue, but what makes bad dialogue? I mean, you often hear this term used that something is clunky, that's a clunky line, or that was a clunker. So when you're talking about that, you know, some people might also call it uh, bumping or pulling the reader out of something. So that's when a line is just clearly there to serve a functional purpose. Maybe it's exposition, maybe it's a segue to another topic, or it's, it's some kind of forced conflict that's being put in there. I think that at that point, we stop believing that this is a real thing that a person is saying, and we see the writer there pulling the strings, and we see all the cogwork moving in the script. Um, and for me, that usually 
usually happens because it's maybe out of character or it doesn't sound like them or as we said before it's something you're not motivated to say or it just feels like far too convenient another term people use for this is it feels contrived or forced yeah i think a, a, one of those symptoms is this idea of speechifying it's something that a lot of shows and movies love to do uh, and that is to have someone make a major speech to rally the troops before some climactic moment in the story and although it can definitely be a cathartic worthwhile moment you can also run the risk of using that concept in other parts of the of the story that I don't really need it. So, for example, um, a character is pontificating about their perspective just so that the audience can learn what they're thinking or want to do, or maybe they're just shutting down an argument of another character just so that the story can move forward. And if it isn't warranted by the character themselves, as in uh, they're not usually the kind of character that would be making a speech at that point, then they should not be saying those things in the first place. There needs to be consistency in the dialogue on that way. And I think another aspect of that is the subtext versus text element that I mentioned earlier. And an example of that is the opening scene of The Newsroom, which is another Aaron Sorkin show, where you have this character pontificating for, you know, five minutes about the values of America and, you know, whatever whatever his beliefs are. And I actually find that scene very annoying because this is a clear example of Aaron Sorkin just pontificating about his beliefs um, on screen for five minutes with no real narrative need. It was literally just there to... Uh, I mean, basically jerk himself off, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, I know you've said before that you're not a big fan of the way that Game of Thrones handles a lot of their thematic stuff and their subtext because it's literally just someone standing there quoting the theme of the show or whatever you know like yeah a little spelling thing. it out for everyone yeah one of those scenes is uh, i'm sure i mentioned it again but like the little finger scene in the second season where he talks about the ladder of chaos to varus and it's just two characters literally watching the physical throne and talking about the themes of the show and the episode which is just climbing the ladder of chaos over a montage yeah it would kind of be like in true detective if they were just kind of like driving and didn't say anything to each other and, went, and he just kind of turns around and he's like hey you know what time is a flat circle he's just like, you want to hear more about what i think about that but instead they had managed to frame it within a, a personal conflict of these two different people's beliefs and, and tie that into the story so you know that's a good example i'll bring it up next time we're driving up north nick i'll be like you know what you ever thought about the meaning of you know like <laughs> let's have this conversation for no story reason yeah well, let's get into some some common pitfalls that people can avoid in terms of what's going to make it bad dialogue. Well, I mean, one of the main pitfalls is starting the scene too early or ending it too late. And I specifically relate that to dialogue. For example, someone saying, hi, Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> All those kind of pleasantries. And the reason why nobody says hello when answering the phone on TV is because it's redundant and useless. You want to be efficient by conveying what the characters intent on saying and nothing more. The filler only works when you're doing it purposefully. For example, an awkward first date where the two people have nothing else to say besides, hi, hi, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? you know, it's really awkward, Nick. I, I feel like there's some awkwardness be between us, Nick, right now. <laughs> Is this a first date? You didn't tell me. <laughs> on episode 51, it's our first date. <laughs> and on the flip side, I think there's also this idea of just writing dialogue-heavy scenes for dialogue's sake, 
thinking that that is the main entertainment, kind of like what Tarantino does. Oh, let me just write this awesome, fast-paced dialogue scene between two people in a car talking about McDonald's. Mm -hmm. I think that's really common in scripts, particularly with pop culture references. Maybe we can call this one Tarantino-itis. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I guess he's so much in scripts. Like, someone's just standing there talking to someone like, did you ever see that movie where this guy did X? You know, what an idiot. You know, for example, in like Clerks, so they like talk about the contractors on the Death Star, even though that's kind of clever. Um, You know, that kind of stuff... Typically, it's the kind of thing that belongs in like a stand-up set or on an episode of Cracked's web series After Hours, not in the middle of a script, unless it's something that actually kind of pays off or has some relation to the character or the themes, or if that's just your voice or your shtick, like Quentin Tarantino or Kevin Smith, but they kind of beat you to it and they do it better than you, so... That immediately brought to mind the scene in X-Men Apocalypse when uh, the mutants just came out of, I think, Return of the Jedi, and they were complaining about how the third <laughs> the third movie is always the worst. <laughs> and it seemed a little bit too meta relating to Apocalypse. Right. But at least it had some kind of like meta joke to it and wasn't just like... I could get some really funny dialogue in here from this character if I go off on some rant that sounds like it should be in my, my Improv 101 show. Right? <laughs> So another thing we talked about before, subtext, bad dialogue is when a character states exactly what they want or feel on the surface, especially feels. If someone's like, I'm so angry right now, and they say that out loud, there is a much better way that you could handle that. You know, the secret to that is just always be green. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Another thing is obvious and unmotivated exposition, telling each other things that they already know about the world or the story or each other. Like, Jimmy, we've been friends for 20 years. I was the best man at your wedding. You know, even when you try to fit that into him being like, so you can trust me, it still feels forced. That's basically the same as uh, repeating people's names, right? Nick. (laughs) Yes, Alex. Uh, When people repeat dialogue like that, Alex, it sounds really silly, doesn't it, Alex? Yes, Nick, it really does does nick <laughs> uh again like tr- cliche and trope lines especially famous lines from other movies sometimes people will use them in a script as an homage or a direct reference but even then it's kind of questionable like if your character says you're tearing me apart visa <laughs> <laughs> uh that's either a cliche or a reference to the room and either way it's like it just bumps the reader out of that emotion. Another thing that is it's kind of a common mistake is characters talking to other characters about action or events the audience has already seen on screen. You know, the audience doesn't need a recap or a retelling of these events because they just watched the that entire scene. Uh, just because that character wasn't there, it doesn't mean that we have to sit through it again as someone explains it to them. You can just cut in on them having finished telling them what happened if that's important to you. Unless... It's a CBS show, and it's the third act. (laughs) Yeah, if you're coming back from an ad break, by all means, please repeat the information because the network needs you to. Another thing is thinking about the context of the dialogue. So if you're writing dialogue that's too formal or too casual, it doesn't match the situation. In real life, people do this thing called code switching. And so that's, you know, the way that you talk to your parents and the way you talk to your buddies on the football team is very different. And even though you are a consistent self and person, in between those two situations, you're going to talk differently and you're going to act differently. As a result, characters' dialogue should adapt to the context and the situation around them while still retaining their fundamental character. Unless, of course, you're playing it for comedy, in which case a very formal British lord speaking in, uh, very properly in the middle of a pub full of soccer hooligans is probably a good choice. Also, another thing that's important to understand is how one character speaks to another can convey the power dynamic between them. So in a situation where everyone should be respectful, if someone's very dismissive, then that tells you something about those two characters, or if they're being casual or that kind of thing. And again, I think a lot of it is about um, contrast, right? It's because you have those clearly defined dynamics between these characters, and that is why it works either as a comedy device or as a dramatic device. For example, if you know someone says father and this other character says dad, then that obviously illustrates their dynamic. Mm-hmm. 
There's also on, on Star Trek, if you look at Star Trek, the way certain aliens speak is very specific to the characters. So uh, Spock, for example, never u- uses contractions. So that's something to look out for in your dialogue as well as what are the specificities. Another thing is not trimming the fat in your dialogue when you're repeating that same information twice in a scene or even in a line sometimes. You know, once a character has made their point or something has been communicated to the audience, it's really necessary to repeat it, at least in the exact same way. Yeah, I mean, if you leave the same sort of arguments be balanced back and forth, that's uh, just wasted space, especially when you have that kind of like ping pong type exchange between two people. You still want to keep that argument compelling instead of just repeating yourself just to fill up that whatever, like 60 page limit. If nothing new is being said or nothing exciting is happening within the action, then chances are you can actually substantially tighten the entire scene. It's kind of like when you're writing an essay in college and you either didn't know what you were talking about or you needed to make a word limit and you just start repeating things in different ways and rephrasing it on the page. We all know that feeling. Yeah, don't do that in screenwriting. You know, I often find when I'm writing that I'll get into a flow and be like, yeah, and then she says this and he says that, especially when you're writing with a partner and you're bouncing off each other, you're kind of like, and then this happens and then this happens. And we stop and realize that we have two pages of conversation and we only really needed one or we only really needed half a page to achieve what we wanted. So often... When you're in that flow, characters are just responding for the sake of responding or taking turns, uh, you know, or we thought it'd be funny if this person said this here. But when you go back through, you can just strip a lot of that away. You can cut lines entirely or you can replace them with an action or a visual instead. All right. So if you read through the script and you realize that you got some real clunky dialogue there, how do you start to fix that? What are some tips and tricks? I think the first thing, and that's actually even in the first draft, is to kind of start with a bad version and work from there. If you're stuck and can't quite find the rhythm of the scene or exactly how your characters express themselves, then don't worry about either of those things and just write out the actual subtext as text of the dialogue. Then you have something to work with that you can edit, reverse, and transform into subtext instead of characters outright stating what they think. Exactly. That's a really important thing to learn as a writer is just to be able to write something you're unhappy with so that you have it on the page and then be able to fix it later. Another little trick that you can use with bad dialogue or something that feels clunky is to turn it into conflict instead. So if two characters are disagreeing on something or they have different wants and so they say things to each other in pursuit of some sort of goal or hitting against an obstacle, then it grounds whatever this exposition or whatever this thing we need to get at is in character and personal and emotional stakes. And the way to express that is is in the dialogue flow. You know, you need to have some kind of flow within the dialogue because writing dialogue is a bit like composing music. There's a certain rhythm to how the characters express themselves as individuals and as an ensemble. If two characters are yelling at each other in quick succession and suddenly one of them starts monologuing about their feelings, the sudden change of pace will be extremely jarring. Again, this isn't a good or bad in of itself, but this is something you want to keep in mind as being intentional instead of just an accident. Another little thing you can do is to make whatever this piece of dialogue that's currently not working is something that another character needs to know. So especially exposition. If one character needs something from the other one, for example, it's a cop and a suspect in an interrogation room, then the process of getting this information out is actually going to be dramatic and not just conveniently stated to the audience for no reason. And lastly, and this goes back to the whole flow of it, you want to read out loud your script, either to yourself or have some kind of table read. Hearing the script is important to understand the pacing of it. Just because a line looks great on paper doesn't mean it will sound good. Reading, speaking, listening to your dialogue is a key part of writing. That's why TV shows and movies have table reads before shoot. 
All right, Nick, what are some takeaways this week? Number one, dialogue is about communication, whether that's communicating story, character, conflict, or any of the other elements at your disposal. Number two, good dialogue is motivated, true to character, and sounds natural while still being efficient and effective. And number three, whether it's an unwarranted monologue or just filler, bad dialogue is often repetitive, inconsequential, or it breaks your immersion with the story. And what are some resources for our listeners? So uh, a book that I like uh, is one called Dialogue Secrets from William Martell or Bill Martell. He has that screenwriting. Of the Martell house. Uh, yes, of the Martell clan. Uh, he has that screenwriting book series called The Blue Books. And I think we've talked about one or two of them before on this podcast. Uh, they are very well written. They're nice and concise. And you can go and get them on Kindle or physical copies uh, on Amazon. And we'll give a link there as well. Yeah, this was actually going to be my resource this week because this book is amazing. But Nick stole it from me <laughs> we're having a conflict right now and i can't express myself anyway uh, i also have an additional kind of recommendation and that is whatever you're working on right now try to find people from that world talking about that world it's what i was referring to earlier in the episode about kind of my own approach to finding dialogue so if you're writing i don't know a cop procedural set in louisiana find a way to hear what cops working in louisiana sound like and what they talk about maybe it's you watching a documentary, maybe it's footage from some car chase, maybe it's literally spending a weekend over there. And even if you're writing something completely foreign about, I don't know, made up alien cultures, nothing exists in vacuum. You probably base some of their customs of existing human cultures or something like that. So what is some content related to those that you can find? I think any field, any world, any person, any character, what have you, there's always content out there that will indicate some kind of uh, speech pattern or some kind of language you can learn from. Basically, get your ear out. And on that note, uh, we would like to thank all of our listeners for taking the time to tune on in and listen to Paper Team. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 51. And also, next week, probably, you're going to be able to get the transcript for this episode at paperteam.co slash 51 transcript. Yeah, and we would also love if you could leave us some reviews. You can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And uh, as we have been doing, we're going to read out a couple of reviews that our listeners have left. And the first one is by Chaz Fisher of the Draft Zero podcast, which I believe is uh, an Australian fella. He is, yes. Uh, the Draft Zero podcast is fantastic. If, if no one's listened to it, you should definitely go check that out. I'm big fans of them. Chaz is a great guy. I've, I've chatted to him before online. Chaz wrote a review entitled Perfect for Emerging Writers, and he wrote, Great mix of craft as well as business side aimed at below the do you tip the studio valet level and with a nice focus on TV. Thank you, Chaz. Yeah, we appreciate that. Maybe in the future we'll do a little collaboration with Draft Zero. That would be amazing. The other review that we've also, we should note that we recently discovered that there are other versions of iTunes than just the US one. So we found a couple of these uh, in the Australian and Canadian and other iTunes. Yeah, there's this like a meta review website that takes all the reviews from the different shops around the world, um, the iTunes stores around the world using those reviews. And I think we had about five additional or six additional reviews that we never knew about going all the way back to like August 2016. Yeah, so we apologize to anyone if we've missed your review. We just found them and we'll get around to reading them. <laughs> um, speaking, speaking of, of <laughs> here's another one from Australia uh, by a reviewer entitled Olympic Comedy. Great for new writers moving to or living in LA. And they say, this is a sensational podcast from two young writers in the thick of things in LA. As a young comedy writer myself, it's great to hear from two people at the same stage as I am. Full of great 
great tips and tightly produced. Well, that is awesome. Thanks for the compliment. And uh, as always, if you would like to leave us one of those reviews, that will help us get more new listeners and build our little community up. And of course, once again, we would like to thank our sponsor, the Tracking Board's Launchpad Writing Competitions. Paper Team listeners can save $15 off the next purchase. Just use the code PAPERTEAM at the checkout to receive your discount. You can learn more about all of the Launchpad's current and upcoming writing competitions by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And I know that their feature competition uh, is open now. I believe the first early deadline is July 9, um, but you can submit for a month or two after that. So throw your stuff in there and uh, and see what happens. Yeah, and the code is PAPERTEAM, all one word and all caps. Mm-hmm. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, interesting lines of dialogue you want to share, you can send them at ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we'll be at Comic-Con 2017. Last year, I did an episode with Maggie Herman on the road back from STCC. And Nick and I are doing something similar with another friend of ours, Lily Cabello, who's been working as a research analyst for Network. She'll be telling us everything you need to know about Nielsen ratings, among other things. So see you next week.